Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The Southwest is sweltering. Phoenix, Arizona just broke its own record for deadly heat. There have now been more than 18 consecutive days there where the thermometer peaked at 110 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. Highs in Phoenix for the rest of this week are forecasted at 115 degrees or higher. And at night, it barely cools off to 99 degrees. The entire Southwest is at the mercy of an historic heat wave. From the southern half of California all the way east to Louisiana and even parts of Mississippi and South Florida, 100 million Americans are enduring life under an intense heat dome. And the United States is just one of many spots across the Earth's northern hemisphere that are smashing high temperature records. And with ongoing climate change, even these new records are likely to quickly fall. I hate to say it's becoming normal, but it feels normal now. We are taking as many breaks as possible. I have water ice down at all times. We're going through 10 to 20 bottles of water per man a day. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Folks with access to indoor air conditioning may be able to ride out this week's long heat wave in safety. But some workers in cities across the southern U.S. have no choice but to labor outdoors. David Broyles is an electrician foreman and a member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in Austin, Texas. I mean, it's obviously exhausting. We are sweating from start at 7 o'clock until half the way home. It's just constant sweating, constant heat, the physical exhaustion. We're, of course, we're using sunscreen, but still it just it completely draining all day. And of course, you're not just standing around outside, it's working outside. So you're physically exerting yourself all the time, having to be conscious of safety, make sure no one gets hurt, not just from heat exhaustion, but from normal construction things. And the more exhausted you get from the heat, the more your judgment will slip and, and things can go awry. Broyles says that for construction workers, the very nature of the job means some of their biggest contracts and workloads come in the summer, such as upgrading electrical in schools when students aren't there. But the workers are inside a baking building with no AC because they're the ones swapping it out. We really have to be our co-workers keepers. We watch out for our brothers and sisters. If anyone is showing any signs of any kind of heat stress of any kind, we immediately will stop work, get them into a shaded or cool location, water, those type of things immediately. We can get busy. Oh, we just want to get this done real quick. Well, 30 minutes later, no one's taking a break. No one's drinking any water. And now we're exhausted. Me being the foreman, it is my due diligence to make sure my men are constantly taking a break, drinking water, making sure water is on hand. It's right there next to them. And as foreman, Broyles is constantly watching his teams to make sure no one is getting sick from the heat. First of all, you'll see them either turn pale or stop sweating. Usually there should be sweat on your body at all times. And if I notice someone is not sweating anymore, then I can immediately tell they are not hydrated. And then you'll get pale skin. 
And then when it goes a little further, then people will be visibly confused. Once someone starts getting kind of hazy and confused, then that's really a sign that heat stress is setting in. As it so often is, Texas is a huge and very particular example of the clash between climate realities, political agendas, and the everyday people trapped between the two. Union workers in Texas, like Broyles and his team, often have water breaks written into their contracts, but the vast majority of workers in the state are non-union. So back in 2010, the city of Austin passed an ordinance that required 10-minute breaks every four hours so that construction workers can hydrate and shelter from the sun. Dallas has a similar local law. San Antonio has been considering one. However, this June, Republican Governor Greg Abbott promptly signed House Bill 2127. The new law allows state government to override certain local rules and regulations. Its scope is very broad, but it contains a section specifically targeting local ordinances dealing with breaks, benefits, and scheduling practices. Meaning, come September, the state of Texas has given itself the power to end Austin's mandatory water breaks for construction workers. Again, David Broyles, electrician foreman and member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. After it came out, I sent a company-wide email that I thought that move was, I think I used the word ghastly, because it's so, it's just so in the face of anyone that works that the leadership could not care any less. When you thought they couldn't care less, then they move like this to say, oh, actually, you don't even need water, actually. Your business owner doesn't even need to provide you water breaks, actually. It's so dehumanizing, honestly. The new law's proponents, including Governor Abbott, say that it will allow Texas to streamline its patchwork of local ordinances. The statute is formally known as the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act. That streamlining, supporters say, is better for Texas businesses. But why specifically target things like the number of breaks construction workers can take, even as state officials are now advising Texans on how to stay safe in the record-breaking heat? Julian Aguilar covers Texas politics for the Texas public radio station KERA, and he joins us now. Julian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so as I just mentioned, the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act, that's its formal name, but it's also being called something else in Texas, and that is? The Death Star Bill. The Death Star Bill. Why? Well, A, I mean, it's a catchy name that people are familiar with, but, um, you know, more importantly is that because, as you said, it's very, very broad, so it could just, you know, wipe out several ordinances that not only deal with, you know, water breaks and, and hiring practices, but predatory lending, environmental regulations. So, yeah, it's it's pretty sweeping, and the trickle-down effect is that a lot of these city officials are worried that the ordinances that they have in place, which they thought was best for their local community, um, you know, which Texas is supposed to be about local control, um, that those would go away now because the state has decided that uh, they know better than these local municipalities and these local governments. And they decided to override these come September 1st, as you mentioned. OK. And so can you just tell us a little bit more uh, about why uh, the Texas state legislature and government Governor Abbott so enthusiastically uh, signed this bill, which, as you said, um, gives the state power to override 
a whole swath of local like regulations. What was their reasoning for the need for this bill? Sure. Yeah. And you, I mean, you said it perfectly is that, you know, just generally speaking, they're saying that they're, that it's hard to grow small business and the economy in general when investors or folks that might want to invest in a certain place in Texas have to deal with these quote unquote patchwork of ordinances. Uh, you mentioned Austin passed the uh, mandatory water breaks in 2010. Dallas followed suit five years later. And with the opponents of the bill say, you know, look at how much the state has grown regardless. This is not handicapping construction or it's not handicapping business at all. Just look, it's you're, you'd be hard pressed to find um, a, a magazine article about the economy of Texas that doesn't mention how quickly municipalities are growing, how many companies are relocating. So this is not really an issue other than the fact that uh, some folks think that the Texas Republicans in charge of the legislature want to override uh, local control in large cities that are predominantly uh, run by uh, Democrat leaders. So we're talking Austin, Houston, Dallas and the like. C- correct. Yeah. And and today, are you in El Paso today? I am in El Paso. Okay. Can you just give us a quick uh, take on what the weather is like for you right now? Of course. Of course. You mentioned Phoenix and, and my heart goes out to those folks out there. We haven't gotten that hot yet, but we are, I think, approaching our 32nd or 33rd day that's going to be a, above 100 degrees. We're, we're looking at about 109, 110 degrees um, for Tuesday and that's just going to you know, remain through the rest of the week. We'll probably hit 40 consecutive days with uh, temperatures of 100 degrees or warmer. And that breaks a 30-year-old record that was set in 1993, which was a runoff. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, you know, people are saying, you know, get ready for this to be the new normal. So this is where we are in El Paso right here out in far west Texas. Wow. Okay. Well, I just want to play a, a little clip here from Dustin Burroughs, who's the Republican state legislature. He represent a uh, legislator, I should say, representing uh, Lubbock. And he introduced House Bill 2027, dubbed the, as you said earlier, the Death Star Bill by, the, by its opponents. And here he is explaining a little bit more about why he thinks state government should have the power to override local laws passed by municipalities. We want those small business owners creating new jobs and providing for their families, not trying to navigate a Byzantine array of local regulations that twist and turn every time they cross city limit sign. Okay, so I wanted to play that because that was back when the legislature was debating the bill and Governor Abbott signed it in June, as mentioned. But now, since Texas is also in the grip of this massive heat wave, there's been a lot of attention within the state on specifically the attempt to or the possibility of overturning these breaks in water ordinances for for workers in different cities. Do you have uh, any read on whether um, state officials might be stepping back from any desire to do that come September? No, I don't think they will. You know, I mean, even when this was was brought up as a concern during testimony and committee hearings uh, about the water break specifically, uh, you know, the the proponents of the bill, the Republican um, author and the and the co-authors said, well, you know, OSHA, the the federal branch under the Department of Labor, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, they already govern that. Um, which uh, just it's it's important to note that Texas is notorious for fighting the federal government, but when it works to their advantage, they'll look to the federal government to sort of defend something that they're doing at the state level. Um, 
but yeah, so they're they're saying, look, you know, there's going to be protections in place, and you know, which which contractor, which employer is going to be so cruel as to not allow their folks water breaks? You know, listening to Mr. Broyles, it, it was encouraging that he obviously cares very much for the for the men and women on his team and for the folks that work for him and for and for uh, his subcontractors, but you know, it's not guaranteed that every employer is going to be like that. And we've already seen uh, a lot of a lot of heat related incidents in Texas, whether it's related to the construction industry or not. Um, so, you know, mm. moving forward, September 1st, it's still pretty hot in Texas. So we're going to have to see what this looks like when it's put into practice. And Julian, just five seconds quickly, has Governor Abbott offered any a legislation to replace city rules and ensure workers get breaks in water? Uh, no, not currently. I mean, they gaveled out and there's not another special session planned until October, and that's for a separate issue. Wow. Well, Julian Aguilar, El Paso-based reporter who covers Texas politics for public radio station KERA. Julian, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you and everyone around you in El Paso is able to stay cool and safe. Appreciate it. Thank you. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And on today's show, we started with the example of construction workers in the state of Texas and how they're looking at a near future where the state government may take away uh, their right in certain municipalities to take breaks, uh, excuse me, breaks and and uh, water breaks specifically to cope with the high heat. Now, much of the Northern Hemisphere right now is under various forms of uh, record-breaking heat. And so today, what we want to do is take a close look at why this is happening, what impact it's having particularly on both cities and rural areas, and whether or not we recognize enough that heat may be the biggest killer around the world uh, as climate change continues on. So I'd like to bring in Jeff Goodell. His new book is called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And he joins us from Austin, Texas. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Magnet. Happy to be here. And and how are you doing today in Austin? <laughs> I'm okay. Uh, I'm in an air-conditioned studio, so I'm okay. But um, it's going to be hot again today, as it has been for several weeks now. 
Okay. So just, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, the confluence of uh, local ordinances from cities that recognize like that workers have been and will continue to be uh, subject, subjected to just terrible amounts of heat. Um, and then the, this state of Texas's uh, deci- decision to give itself the power to override those local ordinances. You've been a climate journalist for quite some time. I and mean, what's your read on this particular tension? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is it's obviously just barbaric. I mean, the idea that, you know, taking water breaks and shade rest for workers is going to somehow impede the economy of Texas is just, you know, just insane, frankly. Um, What they're really about, what this is really about, whether it's, you know, just about asserting control or um, as another writer has described, a lot of... um, conservative Republican policies right now, uh, that the cruelty is the point. I, I don't know. I don't know what, what is the motivation here, but it is um, going to get people killed. Okay. Well, you know, even if workers who have to be outdoors or in high heat settings, because sometimes those are also indoors as well, even if they get adequate breaks and water, I mean, in your book, you lay out clearly that that will not be enough to um, uh, to adapt to the ongoing heat crisis that we're very likely to have every year now for the foreseeable future. I mean, what are some of the other big changes, sticking with construction for a second, that you think cities will need to make? Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the points of my book is that we, we just simply don't understand the risks of heat very well. You know, there's a lot of talk about global warming, now, a lot of talk about, you know, temperatures raising two or three degrees. And it all sounds just like better beach weather to a lot of people. And, you know, my book is about trying to articulate that heat is this active force that, as we move into these higher temperature ranges, can hurt you and kill you very quickly. And the um, understanding the risks of this kind of extreme heat is really important to sort of thriving in the 21st century as temperatures get hotter and hotter. So, I mean, you know, the simple thing is, um, you know, to dealing with heat with construction workers or anybody else is keeping your body temperature down. And that means getting out of the heat, taking breaks, getting into air conditioned spaces, getting into cool spaces, drinking plenty of water. Although I will point out that, you know, a lot of people think water cools them off and can save you know, them from heat, uh, from extreme temperatures, and it doesn't. It does not cool you off. All it does is allow you to sweat, which is how you cool off. And you can still, you know, die of heat stroke um, and be plenty, have plenty of hydration. So water itself is not a panacea. But we also have to rethink about how we design cities, you know, shade, Mm -hmm. urban trees, things like that. Well, so I want to come back to just overall redesign of urban spaces, but um, I mean, construction is just such a vivid example of how small adaptations aren't going to be enough. Because I mean, I know you've talked about before that. Look, we are we're already doing more and more construction at night. I mean, could perhaps maybe most construction in the future would, will have to be done at night. Is that the kind of like large scale and in, you know industry wide change that we might see coming? Absolutely. I mean, this you know, a, a city official in Houston, you know suggested that to me uh, when we were talking a few months ago that, you know, they're thinking about having to shift a lot of construction projects to nighttime um, because it's so hot. And when you start thinking about, I mean, putting aside the health implications and and um, just thinking about the economic implications, 
as these extreme heat waves get hotter and hotter, as these temperatures rise, summertime in cities like Austin and Phoenix and Houston are going to become times when you can't go outside, more or less. And so that means that what are the economic implications of um, you know, essentially shutting down construction and outdoor work except for nighttime uh, for these cities. I mean, the, the economic cost of that is going to be enormous, just simply looking at it from that lens. And there's an inevitability about this because there is a thresholds of heat that humans cannot tolerate. And we're approaching that very quickly in, in these hot uh, southwestern cities. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, we have a lot of listeners right now who are living in these places and they don't necessarily uh, need us to describe what it feels like to be in that much heat. But for those those of us who aren't, you know, living with 99 degree nights <laughs> as it is in Phoenix right now, I mean, I think it was a, a, a visit to Phoenix that inspired you to write this book called The Heat Will Kill You First, Jeff? Yeah, it was. You know, I... I, I I have been writing about climate change for a decade or so, and I was obviously familiar with heat. I mean, we all talk about global warming. We, you know, it's part of the conversation, but I'd never really thought about it as anything but this sort of kind of, you know, gentle kind of warming that will eventually have changes in our climate and in our world. And I happened to be visiting Phoenix on a 115 degree day, similar to what it will be like today and has been for the last week or so. And I had, uh, I was staying downtown and I had to walk 12 blocks to a meeting. And I just kind of blithely walked out the street and, and headed towards my meeting. And by the time I was halfway there, I could feel my heart pounding. By the time I went a few more blocks, I was feeling dizzy. And I realized that heat was this like force, this this thing that, you know, was really dangerous. And I realized that I had never thought about it that way before. I had never realized that heat could kill me or, you know, that, that heat was a, you know, an immediate risk, not a long-term risk, not something that is just, you know, melting icebergs up in the North Pole. It is something that can kill you. And, and that is where my book began. And I began thinking more about heat. And I realized I knew what temperature was, but I didn't even know what heat was. I couldn't describe what heat is to anyone. And I thought this is something that is widely misunderstood and worth spending a couple of years exploring, as I did. Right. So heat is, uh, in my view, radiative energy that's both essential to life on Earth, but also, you know, as you write, we're in that narrow, we as human beings are uh, evolutionarily adapted to live in a pretty narrow band of tolerable uh, to to tolerable heat, right? That Goldilocks zone. So can you take a second to describe, Jeff, what happens to a human body as core body temperature rises dangerously? Sure. I mean, as you just mentioned, you know, we have evolved and all, not just us, but all living things around us have, have evolved in a pretty stable temperature range uh, over the last several hundred thousand years and even longer. And, you know, our our regu regulating of our body temperature is really important to all of the functions of our body. All the chemical reactions and everything need this stable body temperature. And, you know, we know, everyone knows it's 98.6, 99, something in there. And, and everyone knows that if you, first thing a doctor asks you, if you're not feeling well, do you have a fever? And so if you, if your body temperature even gets up to 100, 101, you're calling the doctor. If it gets up to 102, 103, 
you know, 104, you're thinking about going to the hospital. And, you know, it just shows how sensitive our bodies are. And so what happens when we get out into extreme heat and when our body starts to overheat is our heart starts pounding very fast because the way, the mechanism that we have to cool off is sweat. It's the only mechanism that we have to cool off and it's very effective in certain situations. So when it gets hot, the, your, your heart starts pounding and it starts pushing your blood towards your skin. And then uh, as your skin, as you sweat, your skin cools off, the, the cooler blood um, uh, uh, captures that cooling and, and it cools off your entire body as it circulates around. But what happens if you don't have enough water and you can't sweat, or if the temperature rises too fast, then your body starts heating up and it starts heating up faster and faster. Uh, your body pulls your blood away from your brain, which is one reason why you feel dizzy and sometimes faint or hallucinate, which is a big problem for construction workers because then there's um, increase in accidents and things like that. And if your body temperature hits to 104, 105, and and you still and it's still heating up, what actually happens is that your your the, the cells in your body, the the walls of your cells actually begin to melt, and the proteins that control the basic functions of our bodies. Uh, begin to unfold and and you literally kind of melt from within um it's a, it's a very kind of horrific uh um, way to go uh, and most people who who have trouble from heat stroke and extreme heat don't get that far they it's usually heart problems heart attacks circulatory problems that kind of does people in um and that's one reason why heat deaths are so difficult to um attribute because there are often yes. people die of, of heart attacks yeah. Okay. So this is one of the series of of facts that you connect throughout the book, which I think is really important to highlight. That one, um, heat kills more people than some of the more, uh, let's say, television friendly or uh, emotionally capturing types of disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, that that kind of thing. Heat kills more people than that. I mean, and not just in the United States, worldwide, right? I mean, we can remember the... Uh, that terrible heat wave in Paris several summers ago where 15,000 people died. And of course, the effects are felt even more dramatically by all of humanity in the global south. Uh, but then coming back to the United States, you also talk about how there have been assessments done that worker productivity losses, returning back to that sweat economy you talked about, from heat in the U.S. Uh, totaled $100 billion in 2020 and could grow to half a trillion dollars by 2050, but that in the United States, there are no federal rules regulated to heat exposure for workers either indoors or outdoors. All of this is a collective um, sort of expose of how we do not formally recognize what a powerful force or danger heat is. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a couple of reasons. One is I think that, you know, we in the media and um, generally in our culture have done a, a kind of poor job of communicating uh, those risks. And, you know, when you see um, media stories about heat waves and things like that, you often illustrated with people at the beach or playing in sprinklers and, you know, th that kind of idea that, that heat is just a kind of... Um, playful summer force, a playful summer thing that, that you know, allows us to go outside. And, and we haven't really registered it as this, um, you know, we haven't thought about the, the risks of what it does to our body. And partly that's because, 
you know, this is these extreme heat events and things that we're dealing with now are a manifestation of our warming climate. And these kinds of risks, these kinds of extreme heat risks are relatively new. And we're, I mean, obviously there have been heat waves for a long time, but now like, you know, in, in uh, this, the summer of 2021, you know, we had that heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, which is a place that, you know, never gets heat waves. And it got to be 121 degrees in British Columbia. I mean, that was like snow in the Sahara. Nobody predicted that kind of thing. So these risks are increasing exponentially as temperatures go up. And as we reach these thresholds of what our bodies can tolerate, I mean, 110 degree heat wave uh, is very different than a 120 degree heat wave. And, in a, mm-hmm. and a heat wave in a humid place is very different than a heat wave in a dry place. So, you know, our understanding of these risks are lagging way behind. Yeah. You know, you have this um, very revealing sentence in your chapter about the sweat economy where um, you're speaking with one of the sources for your book and you pull out your iPhone. Uh, and it won't turn on because it got that you got that message that uh, iPhone needs to cool down before you can use it. I know exactly what you're talking about on some days where it's so hot that you know it's Apple has programmed that the iPhone gets to take a break from the heat, but <laughs> but but yeah. but but the workers all around you all around us do not get that same you know um, treatment. It's it's kind of amazing. Yeah, and it also points out that um, it's not just, you know, us humans that have a problem when the temperatures rise. It's all living things, um, you know, everything from butterflies to hummingbirds to polar bears to pine trees, you know, everything, our food, you know, corn, wheat, all these kinds of things, everything has a temperature threshold, but also our infrastructure that runs our lives, you know, uh, the steel on bridges begins to get more um, fragile as heat, as heat rises, uh, asphalt uh, begins to turn to mush. Planes can't, can't land. You know, iPhones don't work. I was on a plane just day before yesterday going to Washington, D.C. for some uh, a book event, and the plane couldn't take off because the heat sensors had been overridden in the plane, and we had to sit on the runway for an hour and a half until that was fixed. I mean, the, wow. the, the very infrastructure of our lives, of of, of everything about our world is very, very heat sensitive. And we are not prepared for these kinds of temperatures that we're mm-hmm. moving into. Okay. So speaking of infrastructure, look, I think what you, a lot of people would say or might say, well, maybe we just have to make air condition, air conditioning easier to access, right? Because you have a, you have a, a really striking story in your book. Speaking of that Portland, uh, Oregon, um, the Pacific Northwest heat wave from a couple of years ago, where there was a, a professor who drove to different parts of Portland, Oregon, and measured the temperature on the same day. And the difference between the the, the shaded affluent neighborhoods and the not so shaded poorer neighborhoods in the city of Portland was a 25 degree difference outdoors, let alone indoors. But you point out in the book that you do not think at all that increasing access to air conditioning is the way to is how we're going to solve ourselves out of the heat problem. We've just got about a minute till the next break. Uh, so can you just start telling me why you think that is? 
<laughs> sure, I could go on about <laughs> air conditioning for a very long time, but I wouldn't say that you know improving access to air conditioning is not important. It is very important, but the fact is there are billions of people on this planet who do not have access to air conditioning, and the idea that air conditioning is some kind of magic bullet that's going to solve this problem is very naive and a kind of big myth in the whole story about heat. Well, Jeff Goodell is joining us today. He's author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. When we come back, we're going to talk about what several cities across the world are trying to do to create more adaptive responses to a world with higher heat, including hiring chief heat officers. We'll be back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Jeff Goodell joins us today. He's author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And we're talking about whether we recognize adequately that of all the ways we're rec- we know and can see climate change having an impact on Earth, are we coming to terms with the fact that heat is the one that everyone will feel and that could transform how we live the most. That's what we're trying to explore today. And we've got, got, got some calls from some listeners uh, with personal experience on this. Paula called us from Zurich, Switzerland. So she lives uh, in Europe now. But her parents live in Florida. And they didn't used to have air conditioning, but now it's a must. I've been going to Florida now for the past 10, 15 years to visit my parents who retired there. And I always thought it was so odd that people moved to Florida for good weather. But whenever I walked around the neighborhoods, all of the windows were closed in the houses in order to keep the air conditioning in. My aging parents now have air conditioning and the protection that they need in regards to the heat. It's, it's no longer about comfort. It's about their health. And it's just sad as a person who always looked forward to the summer. I now am scared of it and the heat that it brings. So that's Paula, an on-point listener, talking about her worries regarding her parents who live in Florida. Well, Miami-Dade County is one of several municipalities worldwide who recognize that heat is such an urgent issue, they have actually created a new position in city government, a chief, a chief heat officer. We spoke with Jane Gilbert, who is the chief heat officer for Miami-Dade County, and she says the research shows the threat of extreme heat really varies depending on where in the county you live. 
when I first came on board, we found that certain zip codes in Miami-Dade County were having over four times the number of emergency department visits and hospitalizations related to heat than other zip codes. And we looked at what the strongest correlating factors were. It was high poverty, high land surface temperatures, high percentage of outdoor workers. It was a high percentage of families with children. Well, I'd like to bring in Eleni Mirivili now. She's joining us from Athens, Greece, and she's currently Global Chief Heat Officer for UN Habitat and the Arched Rock Resilience Center. Until recently, she was the Chief Heat Officer for the city of Athens, Greece. Eleni, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Can you please describe what the the duty um, of a chief heat officer is now for the cities that have one? Uh, it's basically to try to make sure that the most vulnerable populations uh, can be um, offered some um, ways to to um, be safe from extreme heat. So it's it's helping cities protect their most vulnerable populations, but also it's helping cities uh, redesign themselves and uh, change the way that they're building themselves so that uh, they are less uh, heat traps uh, and they uh, become actually cooler spaces for people to live in. Mm. Now, we were delighted when you said you could come on the show because um, Athens provides us with a very powerful global example because we remember uh, from uh, what last year, possibly the year before, how Greece was basically on fire, so much of the country. Those those pictures of the flames burning behind the Parthenon. Um, There's there's a similar heat wave going on this summer in Greece? Yes, it's... uh... We just had one. It the it peaked last weekend, and and we're expecting a second one on starting in the next couple of days. It's gonna peak around forty four degrees around Friday, Saturday, and uh, forty four degrees is about a hundred and eleven degrees, which is extra. It's it's very high temperatures for for mm. Athens. And, so forty four degrees st- centigrade, have, and yes. yeah, and one hundred eleven Fahrenheit. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yes. No, we just have again uh, a lot of fires uh, surrounding Athens, and this is a really big problem with with heat uh, around the world. We have long periods of heat, which mean that we have long periods of uh, uh, drying the atmosphere and drying all of the our forests um, uh, materials, and then they 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 burn very very easily, and that's another terrible thing because it becomes a, a vicious circle. Because forests are cooling us. So, yeah. Yes. So I have to, first of all, apologize for a mistake I made just a minute ago. I mentioned the Parthenon. I'm getting my ancient civilizations mixed up here. I meant to say the Acropolis. Um, And I understand that it's been so hot in Greece that the Acropolis had to be closed to tourists just last week. Yes, it's true. We we had to close the Acropolis for several, several hours every day. Uh, so to make sure that people don't, uh, they're they're not in danger, we 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 had the uh, a collab- we have a, a strategic collaboration between the city of Athens and the Hellenic Red Cross. So we always have the last couple of years uh, a, a a little um, special unit of uh, the Red Cross there, giving water to people and giving them pamphlets about how to keep safe. But it's not enough when the when the temperatures soar so high. Okay. 
I keep making mistakes. The Acropolis is in Athens. Um, uh, I, I, I can't oh, even no, blame you're the right. heat. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of Acropolises all around, and it's fine. It's, 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 a, fair, okay. it's a fair mistake. Now, I'm going to bring Jeff back into the conversation in just a second, but I did want to uh, ask you, Eleni, so you mentioned the job of a chief heat officer is to really try to move a city towards a more resilient, heat-resilient uh, infrastructure, exactly. especially for vulnerable populations. So that could be things like uh, planting more trees, um, you know, changing rooftops to be, uh, I guess, more reflective rather than absorbent, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, mm -hmm. How hard was that to do, given that you also have to navigate the complexities of, of local government? Well, that's an interesting question. It's usually quite hard. Um, it's really it's we 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 call it like bringing radically bringing nature into the city, which means like re really investing in what we call nature-based solutions or blue-green infrastructure. And this kind of needs a shift on on many many levels from from the people that have to know how to design them to procuring them, to making sure that the politicians, the people in charge actually understand that these are worth it and all of the co-benefits that you get by doing that instead of just doing a gray infrastructure, meaning like just using concrete to solve all the problems of the city. Uh, it, takes, it takes a lot. It takes a, a big effort. Uh-huh. Okay. So Jeff Goodell, thank you so much for patiently listening along <laughs> with me. I, I just want to hear your thoughts on like, what do you think the significance is that even in just a tiny handful of cities so far, they've seen heat as such a danger that they've appointed, you know, a, a city official to think about how it impacts every aspect of life? Well, I think it's really important because I think um, that you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think that we so profoundly misunderstand the the risks and implications of these uh, uh, more extreme temperatures. And one of the central roles of these chief heat officers is to help educate people, not just the populace, but also politicians and local officials and things to really uh, understand what the risks are and that there are solutions. There are these nature-based solutions, planting trees, bringing water, green spaces into urban areas. Uh, that they can really have a big impact on this. But, you know, the ignorance is very profound on this issue. And there's also just a lot of inertia in doing things the same old way. And why should we change and, and all of that? And these chief heat officers, I think, really help in the beginning to shift that conversation. Yeah. Okay. So, Eleni, you, both of you have now said that one of the main challenges is getting lawmakers or politicians to understand that crafting more resilient cities is worth it. I wonder if one of one of the major obstacles to that is, quite frankly, an old one. And that is, I'm just going to guess that most lawmakers, given the position that they have, are living lives of more comfort most of the time, right? They're the ones in a community who probably definitely do have air conditioning. So it's hard to perhaps get them to ex really see the reality of how deadly the heat is for other people. I mean, could could it be something as, as simple as that that's preventing the recognition needed? Yes. Uh, I, I And I think... I think that I think you're right. Part of it is putting the the head in the sand, right, and and mm -hmm. uh, 
pretending that there is no problem. Uh, also, in in poorer countries, there's always other issues that uh, tend to be more pressing. So, um, um, you know, economic issues or or um, wars or you know all these other things that are more directly recognizable, and you can persuade people. Um, that they are they are more important in a way because again as Jeff said it's really really it's it's incredible how little um, awareness we have about how deadly this thing is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and, Jeff, and, this and is a, I, go, go ahead. No, I, and and also the other thing is which was implied in your in your question that that there is a great inequity in the way that heat. Uh, attacks people. So, so in, uh, it's true that people it it brings to the surface the most vulnerable population, and they are the ones that bear the brunt. So, yes, you're right. I mean, it we have to have a really visionary and democratic leaders in order to tackle these issues. Yeah. So um, here's where some of these threads start coming together, because, Jeff, as Eleni pointed out, um, first of all, the vast majority of the global population does not have air conditioning. And even in places where uh, there is AC, uh, I didn't let, give you enough time to describe why you you, you think that uh, expanding air conditioning is not the answer at all. But I know that one of them, one of the reasons why is like, you know, in a place like Austin or Dallas or Houston or any place in the United States where it's hot right now, all it would take is what, one 24, 36 hour power outage and thousands of people could die when their AC goes away. Uh, do we... Do you see a possible future where, given the threat of these disasters, that we begin changing or shaping cities to do better with things like passive cooling, Jeff? Well, I hope so. I mean, uh, in my book, I describe air conditioning as a technology of forgetting. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, we, meaning, you know, architects, builders, understood how to build for heat and for hot places before air conditioning came along, right? I mean, the Middle East, the cradle of civilization, Iran, Iraq, they knew how to use wind towers to move wind and cooling around over water surfaces, and they basically knew how to build sort of natural air conditioning 400 years ago. Here in Texas, you know, where I live, you know, it's not like people, this was, you know, empty land until air conditioning came along. A lot of people lived here. And, you know, you see these what are called dog trot houses where they have these big open um, passageways between rooms that allow breezes to come through. Uh, just a couple of months ago, I talked to one of the world's top architects and I told him about my, you know, love-hate relationship with air conditioning. And I said, can you build, you know, great new buildings without air conditioning. And he said, absolutely, we can do it. We know how to move the air around. We know how to keep buildings cool without air conditioning. We don't need to do this, but people want it. They're, you know, they, they, we have become addicted to 72 degrees. And we think that you know, it's our God-given right to have all of our spaces at 72 degrees. And we've forgotten this you know, um, natural variability and, the, and the, the sort of wonders of living with that. And just to, to wrap this up, I just want to underscore that, you know, this dependence upon air conditioning, like the caller from Switzerland pointed out earlier, people are living in these sealed up buildings in this hot weather in Miami and Austin and Texas and things, and it's all fine. But if we have a, bl- a major blackout, these sealed buildings become convection ovens. And, you know, 
one of a infrastructure expert in my book from Phoenix predicted inevitably that we will have what he called a, a heat Katrina. In other words, a, 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 a kind of um, a cat catastrophe similar to Hurricane Katrina that hit New Orleans a decade or so ago, in which thousands of people die because we're going to have a blackout that will last, you know, 24 hours or longer. And, and that would be kind of catastrophic. Mm. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, Eleni, I'd like to pose a question to you that was uh, uh, sparked by something quite, let's say, challenging that Jeff wrote uh, in his book. Because he wrote that when you look at what the world's response was to the COVID pandemic, um, it showed just how much death a society, a global society actually, can accept. And he writes that with heat being such an invisible killer, suffering and death will become part of what it means to live in the 21st century, something that we accept. What's your response to that? Oh. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great writing. It's some great writing and, 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 and deeply kind of thoughtful and provocative. We... The, the 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 yeah the fear is that that we will um, uh, that the, the the again it has to do with inequity right I mean how much um, are we just going to close ourselves up in in towers that are air conditioning and leave the people that cannot afford it out how much you know are we going to turn our cities into uh, gated communities that are that have uh, uh, backup energy systems just for the for the rich people. Uh, it's not it's not very sustainable. You know that it actually it's not going to work. We know that it's not going to work because you always need the kind of diversity, social diversity, and social support to actually survive crisis. So it it I hope that you know it we realize how much. Uh, social resilience is important for for any kind of difficult scenarios that we're going to face in the future, and we really build on it uh, instead of going towards really difficult a difficult future. Well, Eleni Miravili, she joins us from Athens, Greece. She's Global Chief Heat Officer for UN Habitat and the Arched Rock Resilience Center. And until recently, she was the Chief Heat Officer for Athens. Eleni, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. We have an excerpt of that at onpointradio.org. Jeff, thank you for a great book and for really getting us thinking about this invisible killer. Thank you for having me on. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.